0: Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we ask your blessings on this time together. More than anything, Lord, we ask that your spirit work through us here. Your spirit work through me, help me to get out of the way, help our cares and worries in the world to get out of the way, and help your and and, and allow your spirit to just change our hearts and change our minds and change the way we go out of our, go about our lives as, as we go out from here today and and as the song said, help us to choose to be holy. Help us to be to choose to be set aside to do your will. Lord, help us to choose, work in us, so that we choose to be golden vessels for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, I want to start our time together this morning by telling you three stories of of three different believers and the the first believer, the first Christian, was born about the same time Jesus was in what is uh, present day Turkey. And this man was was Jewish. He was a part of the, the the very strict Pharisaical sect that was that was popular in that time. He was a a devout Jew. Uh, he was born into the tribe of Benjamin. He would he would call himself sort of the the prototypical, the ideal Jewish man. And as part of his zeal to follow. God, he actually found himself persecuting the fledgling Christian church for the sin of believing in Jesus Christ. We we know that that he would go from house to house and and pull Christians from their homes where they would be beaten and imprisoned. And, and, And we understand that he was involved in at least one murder of a Christian person because that person was a Christian. Now, miraculously, one day, the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to this man. He had, a, he had a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and from that moment on, of course, his life was changed. He was, he was instantly converted to Christianity. And, and from that moment on, he, he lived the rest of his life pouring his life out as a drink offering for Christ. He, Despite being beaten and stoned and shipwrecked and imprisoned, he would complete three missionary journeys throughout the Roman Empire. He would plant directly that we know of at least a dozen churches. Under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he penned all right, I'll say it, 13, maybe 14 books of the Bible. When he was looking back at his life, he was able to say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. An amazing transformation and an amazing life. And now I'll tell you about another believer. And and this man was born actually not, not that long ago. Um, to a sort of a nominal Christian family. But but as a kid, he he never really knew Christ. And then as a youth and in college, he was tortured by ideas of faith and questions and existential angst. He cried out to God at times, uh, but was never really willing to accept Christ as his Savior. But then God, in his infinite mercy, took this man abroad. And in the crucible of combat, he broke him. And when that man was brought to his knees, he was able to accept Jesus Christ as his Savior. Much like Paul, this man would say that he had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. But unlike Paul, this man's, the course of this man's life didn't change quite so dramatically. This man endeavored to live for Christ, but he often finds that the thorns and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word in his life finds himself being unfruitful. Sometimes this man even wonders if he's just living his life crying, Lord, Lord. But when he gets to heaven, Jesus will say, I'm sorry, but I didn't know you. I'll tell a third story, and this one's just an amalgam. There's no reason to implicate an individual believer, and the point can be made Uh, in any case. You guys can all fill in the blanks, but imagine a Christian Seemingly on fire for the Lord. I don't know, he's a, a, a speaker at a big mega church or a writer of popular books or, or, or a musician, a Christian musician or something like that, and seemingly bearing great fruit for the Lord. And then, and then all of a sudden the news breaks and this person is involved in, I don't know, fill in the blank, an affair. Drugs, alcohol, embezzlement, abuse, whatever it is, but we see that this Christian's life goes terribly off course. We see that that this Christian's name becomes a byword for hypocrisy. Sometimes this Christian's life can recover, and we know sometimes not. Three very different Christians with very different experiences in life. What is it that drives the difference among these Christians? What is it that's the difference between a Christian with a life like Paul and this believer who never quite got his life off the ground or, or, or someone whose life goes terribly off course? Well, I think we'll see in Scripture today that that difference is how that believer understands and how that believer appreciates what their life should look like after salvation. The rest of their life should look like, after they come to Christ, what that life should look like that, that God has called them to. And I will say that, that that's the difference between a life like Paul's and, and a life like, like many of ours. So it, you may be asking yourself, well, if, if the Christian life is so, so determinative, you know, how do we know that our idea of the Christian life is accurate? Well, I'll say that, that we've been doing a pretty good job of that the last few months. We've been looking at the pastoral epistles, and the pastoral epistles have many images within them, that show us exactly how we, we should think about life as a Christian, right? Paul gives us this image of a soldier. He gives the image of a farmer. He gives the image of an athlete. He gives the image of a worker. And I think today what we're going to look at in Scripture is, uh, is an additional metaphor, and I think it's maybe one that's that's the most challenging. I think it's one that maybe even puts the finest point on what life as a Christian really is like. And I think we'll see that, that this this Scripture, this passage, could either be a stumbling block for believers or unbelievers alike, or it could light our lives on fire as Christians. And this passage is it's second Timothy chapter 2 verses 20 through, through 22. So Second Timothy chapter 2 verses 20 through 22, all twos. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Paul writes this in Scripture. He says, "But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay." Some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So having having read the scripture, you might be thinking, Wow, JR, that was that was a pretty big wind up for a pretty straightforward couple of verses. I and mean, it's about you know you got golden vessels you got wooden vessels obviously you want to be a golden vessel to do that you, you flee lust like tell us how you flee lust in our lives and let's go go on and go home and play football right or, or watch football i mean of course you're not going to say that but it's not obvious you know where the power in this scripture is and it's not obvious it could be a stumbling block it's not obvious how this could be a stumbling block and so I'll start there, and I'll say, you know, it's, it's almost so obvious in the scripture that it's easy to overlook, but for any of this to have transformative power in your life, you kind of want to be a vessel, right? I mean, it's talking about golden vessels and wooden vessels, so you've got to make a sacrifice, you've got to give up these lusts to be a golden vessel, but for any of this to matter to anyone, you have to want to be a vessel in the first place. And it's not really obvious why that would be. We gloss over it as Christians. We're so used to this, but it's not really obvious why we would want to be a vessel in the first place. I mean, take a step back and and, and set aside how you would answer a Sunday school question and think about how this verse really hits you in your heart. Better yet, take another step back and think about how someone who's a non-believer would perceive this verse. Someone who's steeped in our culture, our culture who values what? Who glorifies pride, individualism right? Self-actualization, self-gratification. How would someone steeped in that culture approach this verse that's talking about being a vessel, being a vessel for God? I mean, what is a vessel? It's a bowl, right? Or it's a tool, it's an implement. And here it's being used in the master's house, presumably to serve someone else. The, the, the bowl doesn't get anything out of it, right? The master gets something out of it. The, the person who's being served gets something. What does the bowl get out of it? Right? And, and once you're, you're in, you're just a tool being used for someone else. What do you care whether you're a wooden bowl or a golden bowl or a tupper? Like, who cares? What difference does it make? Right? So this is this is the perspective of our culture, I think, when they read this. And, and I mean, we don't have to guess that. We, we can actually, culture tells us exactly what it thinks about this idea of being a, a servant to God, a vessel for God. I'll read a quote from uh, an influential um, 20th century thinker named Robert Ingersoll. I mean... Some of you might be already cringing knowing who this is, but uh, he, he writes this. He says, All religious systems enslave the mind. Certain things are demanded. Certain things must be believed. Certain things must be done. And the man who becomes the subject or servant of this superstition must give up all idea of individuality or hope of growth or progress. That's what he says about being a servant to God. Here's one from Richard Dawkins. We, I think, probably are all familiar with his work. He says, There is something infantile in the presumption that somebody else has a responsibility to give your life meaning and point. Talking about God. The truly adult view, by contrast, is that our life is as meaningful, as full, and as wonderful as we choose to make it. That's the adult view. But just think about it. A junior in college who's been steeped in this idea that the intellectual elite has debunked the myth of God long ago, who's been steeped in this idea of individualism and self-actualization, how would they respond to this verse? Well, I think it would be a, a big barrier to them accepting Christ. Think of the value proposition they're going to see in this verse. Become a servant. Give up. Give up my youthful lusts. Read. Give up my fun and, and right and, and my freedom and, and ultimately give up my freedom to God. That's the value proposition they see if they read this on face value, right? And I think it could be a real barrier. And it's not just non-believers that this bar- that this scripture could be a stumbling block to. Think about us and our perspective as believers, right? I mean. The Adam and Eve's rebellion in the garden, that was really nothing more than them supplanting God with themselves on the throne of their lives, right? There's a quote from Milton. He wrote Paradise Lost. And he, he portrayed Satan, who I believe in a lot of ways is meant to, to, to demonstrate to us and highlight to us what our, what our hearts are really doing, the, the, the depths of our, our of our hearts. And he writes about Satan this way. Satan has been cast out of heaven and into hell. And he's, he's sort of hectoring his demons to, to buck them up because they're all lolling about in hell after being cast out. And here's what Satan says about hell. He says, he says, Here at least we shall be free. The Almighty hath not built here for his envy, and he will not cast us out. Here we may reign secure. And in my choice, to reign is worth ambition, even though it's in hell. Better to reign in hell and serve in heaven. Stop for a second. Look into your heart of hearts. Better yet, to understand what you really believe, look at your behaviors. Look at where you spend your time. Look at how you react to things. Look at your thought life. Are you really as comfortable with the idea of being a sacrificial servant, a vessel to God, as you'd like to be? I know I struggled with it. We've been going through the the, the, the book of 2 Timothy, Be a soldier? Yeah, you got it, man. Soldier, you got it. Yeah, an athlete? Let's get after it. A farmer? (laughs) All right. I could be a farmer, a worker, okay, but a vessel? So if we're Christians, what do we do with our hearts when, when when we hit a verse like this? Well, if you're anything like me, I'll tell you exactly what you do. You say, okay, I love God. I love Jesus. I'm so grateful to him for what he's going to do. He's telling me here to be a vessel. I'm going to be a vessel. He's telling me to, to flee from lusts. I'm going to flee from lusts. Let's get after this thing. Okay, I'm going to write a list of what all the lusts are, right? I'm going I'm to memorize some scripture I can repeat as a mantra every time I'm tempted by this lust. I'm going to get an accountability partner and a check-in schedule. How about an Excel spreadsheet, right? Let's get an Excel spreadsheet. Is anybody with me here as a reaction to something like this? No. No, 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 no. I always wanted to pound on the pulpit. I worked that in there just for that. So thank you for that. But no, no, nothing I've said about how to understand this scripture is right. If you're an unbeliever and your response to this is, oh, man, this sounds like such a buzzkill. This Jesus guy sounds great in the gospel. I can get on board with that. But, but give up my youthful lusts? Be a servant for, for someone else's sake? Or if you're a believer and your idea is, okay, I'm going to, man, I'm going to just, good soldier, I'm going to ruck it up one foot in front of the other, just grit my teeth and get this lust out of my life, it's it's not going to work. You've put the, the, you put the cart before the horse and you're setting yourself up for, for for failure here. Right? This verse should not be a burden to us. It should not be a stumbling block to us. It should be a powder keg in our lives. And so... For that to happen, the first thing we have to do is see through this lie that's become a stumbling block. This lie that that Ingersoll and and Dawkins and Satan is telling us. And what's the lie? The lie is that your choice that's presented by this scripture is to be a a servant of God or to be free. That's the choice they're saying. They're saying you should should be free. I hate to break it to you guys. Ain't none of you got that choice. None of us do. Scripture tells us that we're, we're all slaves of something. Okay, you can either be slave of God, big G, or God, little g. We all know this is true. We look at our lives and we look at this world around us, and we know it's filled with these powers. They're trying to get us to sacrifice ourselves and spend our time and our money for their benefit, not ours. Think about it. I mean, alcohol is addictive. Processed foods are addictive. Pornography is addictive. Gambling is addictive. Ta- tobacco is addictive. Our cell phones are so Addictive. And the purveyors of all these things. They're trying to do everything they can to infiltrate every moment of your life to get you to become more and more susceptible to these addictions. Many of us are slaves to consumerism. We're spending our precious lives and, and trading our precious time for money, and then we're trading this money for things that we're being brainwashed into thinking we need, and we don't even want them. They end up in storage. That's not freedom, right? Or think about someone who's made a god out of money. Who's a slave to his money? Think about it. here's an interesting way to think about it. what would a prayer to someone who's made a God out of money sound like. <sighs> Praying to, to, to money here. Lord, thank you for the roof over my head, the food on my table. Thank you for everything you've given me. I pray for you to grant me security. I pray for you to grant me health how can I, please show me, how can I have more of you in my life? I know it's only you that can bring me joy or or security. I'll do anything. I'll make all the proper sacrifices. Just show me what it is. I'll spend all my time. I'll exhaust myself seeking you. I'll wake up in the morning thinking about you. I'll pursue you all through the day. Lord, I'll, I'll think about your absence or your presence in my life before I go to bed. I promise... I will disregard my wife and my kids to go pursue you. Just tell me what you need. I know only you can make me happy. Just tell me what that is. Maybe it's not money. Maybe it's the approbation of someone else, of mankind. Maybe it's status. Maybe it's pleasure. Maybe it's, it's accomplishment. Everyone is saying a prayer like that to something in their life. So the first step to getting past the stumbling block in this scripture is to recognize that lie. There's a choice between serving God and being free. It's Satan's lie. It's the first lie he ever told us. Do you think Satan's purpose in the garden was was to get Adam and Eve to rebel against God so they can serve themselves and self-actualize? No, he just lied to them to deceive them, to make them think they were doing that so they would serve him. And guess what? He succeeded. And guess what? He's still telling that same lie. He's just doing it through our cell phones now. And guess what? He's still succeeding. So we have to see through that lie. We have to remove this stumbling block to make us want to become a vessel. So once we see through that lie, then then we can evaluate this choice as it really is. We can evaluate the choice between serving God, capital G, and these idols, these gods with a lowercase g. And once you have that choice in front of you, it becomes easy. Because then all you have to do is think about who God is. I think a great way to think about who God is is to think about him through the lens of, of, of the gospel. Let's think about who God is for a second through that lens, through the lens of the gospel. Here's God, here's the master that will serve as, as vessels through the lens of the gospel. The God that I know is so perfect and so loving and so powerful that he created this entire universe for us for us to live with him in perfect fellowship for all eternity. Our God is so perfect that when we rebelled against him and sinned, because of his nature, because of his character, he couldn't be in fellowship with us. Our God is so perfect and so loving that even though we rebelled against him, he didn't abandon us. He nonetheless talked to us. He taught us about himself through prophets. He created a system where we could still to some degree be in relationship with him for our benefit, not his. This is what we see in the Old Testament. My God is so perfect and so loving that he came up with a perfect plan to restore our fellowship with him. He's so perfect and he's so loving that that plan was for him to degrade himself as God and take on a human form for him to live life in the the suffering and the temptation as a human being, but for him to do it perfectly, and then for him to take on the sin of all mankind out of love for us and bear the punishment that we've all amassed throughout all of history, all at once, and, and unimaginable suffering on the cross. Our God is so perfect and so loving that I don't have to earn the salvation that he made possible. All I have to do is accept it as a free gift and accept him as a Lord to be back in fellowship with him. That's how perfect, that's how loving, that's how great, that's how amazing our God is. And when you think about him that way, when you think about him as a master in that way, you know all of a sudden that you're not going to serve him out of fear or out of some sense of obligation or some desire for, for a reward or, or, or payment. You serve him out of joy and out of gratitude and out of love. I mean, think about what What should our response be? Our response should be like, God, I cannot believe you did this for me. You are so perfect. You are so loving. I cannot believe you are so amazing. I can't believe you care for me. Me, this tiny little pinch of clay, this thing that all I do is I offend you. I go about my life trying to serve myself when I should be serving you. God, I love you so much. God, show me what to do. Tell me anything. You want me to be a soldier? I'll be a soldier. You want me to be a farmer? I'll be a farmer. I love you so much. Just tell me what it is. Now you're ready to be a vessel. That's exactly where God wants us. He wants us to understand his love. He wants us to understand what his sacrifice for us means. And he wants us to to seek to serve him out of love and gratitude and joy. And once he has us in that place, what does he ask us to do? Just be a vessel. Just be a vessel. And now we all, I think, want a place where we want to do that. So, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a vessel? Well, the Greek word. For vessel that's used here is, I'm going to butcher this, hopefully there's, Dan and John aren't even here, I don't think that's good, so they want to, I think it's Skyos. It's Skyos it's is a Greek word, and, and it can mean, sort of it's sort of generic, it can mean uh, like how I've been using it, like a container, like a vessel, or it can also mean sort of like a tool or an implement or something like that, some of your translations might might use that word. And just sort of as an aside to clear out the underbrush, I I, I think that using it as vessel makes sense here because Paul uses this exact same word in 2 Corinthians where he clearly means it as a vessel, as a container. It's used in Acts 9 similarly. And I also think it just adds a lot of power as we're exploring this verse. I think it's going to add a lot of power and meaning to the verse that wouldn't otherwise be there. And then also, there's no indication that I could find, at least, that you shouldn't use it that way. And so you're sort of at liberty to, to translate in different ways, as your, as your Bibles show. We're comfortable going forward with as a vessel. That was sort of a, a technical aside, but I, just, I, I want that to be clear. But this, this image of a vessel, it's used throughout the Bible. It's such a powerful, such a complex image. It's this image of us in our lives as the vessel— Right? But it's not just that. It's, it's also like, like what our lives are filled with. Right? So it's this image of the sum total of our life experience and, and, and us. And, then, and also it's even more sophisticated than that because it's, it's, it also brings in this image of how what's in the vessel impacts the vessel and, and changes the vessel. And so it's all these things wrapped up. It's this incredible, powerful, complex imagery. And, and I think actually to just look at some verses where it's used is the best way to get our minds around it. So the first one would be, in, in, and I want to look at it, is in Psalm 31. And this is one of David's psalms of, of lament, and i want to start at verse 9. And here David writes, Be gracious to me, Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted away from grief, my soul and my body too. My life is spent with sorrow, my years with groaning. My strength has failed because of my guilt. My body has wasted away. I am forgotten like a dead person out of mind. I am like a broken vessel. So we see here that David's life is spent with sorrow, his years with groaning. He's describing his life experience, he's describing what's in the vessel. But then, then also, we have this sense that all this torment within his life over the years has been almost too much for the vessel, and then it breaks. Right? His life, his vessel breaks because of the storm. So it's this interaction, this complex interaction between his life and, the, and, and he, him as, as the vessel. Another, so I think we're getting a sense of it, and another one that I think really is going to drive this home is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. And this one takes a little bit of unpacking, but it's worth it. And here Paul writes, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Again, we have this image of the vessel and this vessel is our life. And here it describes us as earthen vessels. And The idea here is, you know, we're these finite sort of fallible creatures and we're made from the earth, or earthen vessels, and we're easily broken and then we, we return to the earth. That's sort of the idea here. But then these earthen vessels are filled with a treasure. What is this treasure? Well, he says this treasure, meaning he's already described it. So it's the sentence preceding that that describes the treasure that the vessel's going to be filled with. And he starts out by talking about God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness as a treasure in this vessel. So, so he's invoking this image of God the creator. This is God in his, his most awe-inspiring first act of bringing something out of nothing with a word. And, and he does it by, by bringing forth this, a burst of light in the darkness. This is an incredible, powerful image. This is a treasure that's filling us as earthen vessels. And then he goes on to say, This light as the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ. That's kind of hard to wrap your mind around, but I think what he's getting at there is you have the glory of God, this light of God the Creator, and then you have the glory of light face of Jesus Christ. And so it's sort of the glory of God as it's manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. It's the glory of God as it's manifested in this perfect love and perfect sacrifice. It's the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And this is a treasure, again, that fills us as an earthen vessel. This is, this is what the treasure is. This is an incredible image. This is, this is God in all of his glory filling us. So this is what it means to be a vessel for God. This is what it means, means to, to serve God and be filled with him in this way. And I'm sort of like winding down and, and we all sort of, okay, yeah, 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 I get that, I get that. We're, we're filled, we're filled with it. The Bible is, is filled with this imagery, right? Um, upon our salvation, what happens? What happens? What does the Holy Spirit do? It indwells us, right? This is, the Bible is filled with this image. And even Jesus Christ himself says specifically that he abides in us. He says in John 15, 5, he says, I am the, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, he's abiding in us. We can bear much fruit. For apart from him, we can do nothing. So Jesus Christ himself lives in us. This is an amazing concept. And I think for Christians, it's easy for us to sort of gloss over this. We're we're so familiar with this imagery. But I really want to just pause for a second and and think about what this is talking about. Because this is the crux of it all. Think about it for a second. God, the creator of the universe, literally brought all of this, the entire universe, into existence out of nothing. His presence, His power sustains it. We can't even see. His glory is so great, we can't even see but a little bit of it. Or we'll be, in our, in our mortal lives, or, or we'll be blown into oblivion. He can only show us a tiny bit. Think about Isaiah, prophet of God, the prominent prophets in all the Old Testament. He goes in front of God and he sees him, and what does he say? Oh, this is too much. I'm undone. I'm undone. The glory is too much. This is the God that fills our lives. Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect love. The absolute archetypal sacrifice for other people. Jesus Christ fills us. Him. Jesus Christ fills us as believers, as vessels. The Holy Spirit. Think about the Old Testament. Think about the amazing things that people could do in the Old Testament when the Bible says explicitly, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Think about the New Testament, the apostles, all the amazing miracles that they worked when they were filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit, the whole triune God. All that that implies in us. That's what it means to be a vessel of God. Imagine what your life is like if you're actually walking around out there and you fully appreciate this. Think about it. You're going to be unstoppable. We don't appreciate this. Having this in mind, walking around with this in mind, is how we live life and live it more abundantly the way Christ promised. This is how our yoke gets light. This is how we live out the fruit of the Spirit. This is how we have a spirit not of timidity and fear, but of power and love and self-discipline. This is how we have the courage to go out, as it says here, and do every good work for the Lord in a world that hates us. It's having this power of God in us. It's not through us. This is what it means to be a vessel of God. This is what it means to be filled with God. Are you guys with me? This is amazing. Right? But there's a catch. <laughs> right, all of that's true, but there's a catch if there wasn't a catch, there'd be no reason to write scripture about it, right? It would just happen and 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 you'd never have to write about it, right? We'd all be living this every day what's the catch? The catch is God is holy we 're not. God is perfect we're not like I said when I was talking about the gospel, God is so perfect and holy that he can't coexist with sin or darkness or filth, right. And so how does that fit in with what we've just been talking about, about God filling our lives? That doesn't make any sense. Well, believe it or not, the image, the metaphor of a vessel has yet another layer that can help us understand this. And think about it. A vessel is, has, has two characteristics. One, a vessel like our mortal lives is limited. It has limited space. Okay, And so now we can go back and think about those idols that we identified, those lowercase g gods that we identified earlier in the passage. And it makes sense here because we can call them something else. We can call, you know, greed. We can call lust. We could call a desire for power or sex. We can call those youthful lusts, can't we? Right? Aren't all those things just the desires of our immature flesh before we mature as believers? And so, to the extent your life is filled with these things, to the extent your vessel is filled with these things, there's no room left over for God. Right? That's why Paul tells us, flee from youthful lust." He's saying, make room for God to fill your vessel. Here's another thing that's true about vessels. Is whatever they're filled with impacts them. It changes them. It rubs off on them. It can stain them. Right, The same is true for us as vessels. Now look, we might tell ourselves that you know, watching a, a reality TV show is not really that big of a deal. It's just entertainment. But do you really think that filling your lives with hours and hours of things that are negative, the things, that, portrayals of people who are, who are drunk and bitter against each other and spending unearned wealth, you think those things aren't going to impact you? Right? We're like clockwork-oranging ourselves with these images every day, and we think it's not going to change our lives. The same thing with the with with limited room in your vessel. Look, for every minute that you spend half-drunk on the TV watching some garbage on Netflix, that's a minute that you're not serving God, and you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. Just look at what Paul tells us in Ephesians. He says, what? He says, don't be drunk on wine, this is dissipation, mean, meaning waste, but instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul's explicitly telling us that, that giving in to youthful lusts and being filled with the Holy Spirit are mutually exclusive, right? So, to the extent we're filling our lives with these idols, and, and to the extent that we're corrupting our vessel so that God doesn't want to touch it, that's the extent to which we're not leaving, living a life filled with God. And to be, I guess, to, to be clear after having said all of this, what Paul's not talking about here is he's not talking about losing our salvation because of these things. The, this, these vessels are in, are in the master's house, right? These are saved individuals. You're not going to lose your salvation. That's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is the extent to which we're living the life empowered by God and his presence in us that God wants us to live. In other words, he's asking us, how much God do you want in your life? If you go to the, to the ocean with a thimble, you're going to get a thimble full of the ocean. And Paul's asking us, what do we want to go to the ocean with? What's your, what's your vessel that you're going to go to the ocean with? Right. So, with all of these things in mind, we've like debunked the lie right? We've removed the, the stumbling block, right? And so we've understood, so that we know what's the choice. The choice is between serving God and serving, you know, idols or, or youthful lusts. So we know that's our true choice. We, we thought about, through the lens of the gospel, how amazing of a master God is. And so we chose, yes, we want to be vessels. We want to serve him because we love him so much, Right? And then now we're talking about what we want to be golden vessels, we don't want to be earthen vessels, we want to be golden vessels that can be filled with Holy, the Holy Spirit and have so much so much room for him and, and that he has the ability to fill us because because we're sanctified exactly as Paul says here so how do you how do you go about doing that right I mean this all sounds awesome, and we're all convicted here, I'm sure, but when you walk out the door the rest of this afternoon, what does that look like? Or the rest of this week or god forbid like monday morning like like what does that look like well I, i'll say the, the first thing that you want to do is you want to go back to the beginning the, the first thing we talked about what was the first thing it was like you got to want to be a vessel and you want to be a vessel because you understand the gospel and what it means for you right and so i'll start if you're if you're not a believer yet if you're not saved yet your first and only task here is to think about who god is and what his sacrifice means for you from, from what we've talked about today, and to read more about that in the Bible and to think about that and how amazing God is and how amazing His love is and, and, and how important that decision is. And so that's your first and only task if you're unsaved. And if you need help working through all of those things, I'm sure to talk to anyone in this congregation. They're going to be absolutely, absolutely honored to walk through that journey with you, to, to, to walk beside you on that journey. All right? So if you're an unbeliever, that's the first thing. If you're not a believer, that's the first thing you should do. For us believers, look... I mean, God, Jesus knew that we were fallible, and and He knew that we would need to be reminded of this. This is why He instituted the Lord's Supper, because He knows that we need constant. Or one of the reasons but He knows that we need constant reminders of how powerful the gospel is in our lives, or we're going to forget, because that's what we do. Right? And so I'm going to turn this into a shame, shameless plug for the breaking of bread service. I love this service, but it's it's our communion. It's what we're commanded to do, and it's and that's all we do there is think about. Christ's sacrifice for us, and be reminded of how important that is, and to to renew that first love and our gratitude for that. And then from there, we go out into the world with that with that gratitude first and foremost in our minds. And so, that's the first thing that we need to do is to is to, to want to be vessels. And then you can talk about well, you know, how do you get rid of the youthful lusts? How do you how do you sanctify your life? And, and obviously, sanctification is we could talk forever about that. But I'll say the first thing is again, don't go back to what my, sort of my first reaction was to this, which is to, to, to turn this into, to turn it into an act of willpower, right? We all know that acts of, you know, it's, of course, it's important to, to, to repent and to do, you know, muster your will to and turn away from sin and to, you know, invite the Holy Spirit in to work with you to sanctify your life and all those things. Of course, those things are important, but you can't just see it as an act of willpower. You're just going to grit your teeth and get the sin out of your life. That's, that's setting yourself up for failure, I think. I think, again, what you need to do is, is approach this from, from the perspective of, one, being grateful to Christ, like see step one, and then also this, this idea this become a, enamored with this image of what your life could look like if you're filled with God, if you're a vessel, a golden vessel for God, right, and become so energized by that as an image that you're so excited about that that you really, you literally just can't stand the idea of anything getting in the way of that it's not that you're gritting your teeth i really want to do this lustful thing but i know i'm not supposed to so i'm going to i'm going to do whatever i need to do to not do it. it's not that it's that gosh i couldn't stand to do that because i have this image of christ in my life with christ in mind that just makes it absolutely repugnant to me to even think about doing whatever this thing in your life is. I think that's the the first order way to go about getting lust out of your life. I think I have time to to give you one more tool. Because, I, look, I, I understand maybe we're all convicted here at this point, but it's really easy for a guy just to stand up here and be like, okay guys, what you need to do is go go get enamored with this concept, right? Like, how do you go get enamored with a concept? Right? Well, of course, we've like, started doing it now, like appreciating what all this really means, where we're getting rid of lies in our lives and, and, and all those things. But I'll give, you, I'll give you a really quick tool that could help you do this, and that's it's a writing exercise. Okay, And, and look, don't roll your, <laughs> roll your eyes. It's a writing exercise. It's powerful. Just, just try it. I wish John were here. He would endorse this, I'm sure. But basically, sit down, and I'll, I'll say this really quickly, but just sit down, get a couple hours by yourself, Sabbath is great for this. Just sit down and think through what we've just talked about and identify some of the idols, some of the gods in your life aside from Jesus. Right? And that won't take long. If you've been a believer for any amount of time, to almost to ask the question is to answer it. We all know what these things are. And once you have this list, I want you. here's the writing exercise. I want you to sit down and just take a few minutes. Just free flow writing. Don't edit it. You'll never show it to anybody. It's really just about thinking through it Write two futures for yourself. Write one future and use your imagination where you've wholly given yourself to these youthful lusts. Where these gods have taken complete control of your life. Write that just for a few minutes. Okay? And look, one thing I'll say is all gods are jealous gods. If there is a god that has space in your vessel aside from Jesus, that god will ravenously fight to devour more. And I think if you, if you do this exercise, you'll find you're not that many steps away from that third believer that we started with whose life is torpedoed, right? A lot of people find that, and it happens to people very quickly. I don't say that to scare you. Actually, I say that to scare you. I say that to make you take this exercise seriously because it happens to people, right? And the other thing you do after you've done that and you have a good sense of that, then write an alternate. An alternate future. Write a future of what your life would look like if you were really a golden vessel for the Lord. If you had that power that we were talking about, what would your life look like in your in your marriage? What would your life look like if you were, do, if you were filled with the Holy Spirit and just doing good works in, as an as a employee or as a parent? Or what would your finances look like? Write that. Just spend some time writing that. Pray over it. Set it aside. Again, I wish John was here. There's something that happens. This is like a proven method where, and your subconscious, where this has a powerful effect on people's lives. And, and you couple that with the Holy Spirit, and, and it could just be an amazing thing. It only takes a couple of hours, so I highly, highly recommend it. And I'll also say, to, just to endorse it one more time, it's biblical, because think about it. The, in neuroscience, they tell us that you have two systems in your brain. One, that's the fight or flight, right? It's the one that gives us motivation and energy to get away from things that are going to do us harm. And the other one is the, the, they call that the the avoidance system. The other one's the approaching system. It's the thing that gives us energy to pursue things that will benefit us. It's two completely different systems in your brain, right? Uh, And adult behavior change is so hard, you really have to leverage both systems to do it, right? And I'm talking about neuroscience here, but but what does Paul tell us to do here? He says, flee youthful lusts. Pursue these other biblical love and, and pursue these things. He's He's essentially, science has caught up with Paul here, right? And he's telling us he's using both these systems. He's he's, he's giving us the structure to change our lives by, by fleeing and, and by pursuing. And so I endorse this. I hate to leave here without giving you something, no kidding, that you can do today to change your life. And so I'm, I'm absolutely exactly out of time. So I'll just end by saying, look, the final point here is that it's up to us. That's a huge thing here is, is that we are the ones that make the choice what kind of vessel we are, right? Through the choices that we make and how we think about things and how we orient our lives. The choice is ours. The choice is ours whether we're a believer like Paul. The choice is ours whether we're a believer that's just sort of lukewarm or, or whether we, we end up torpedoing our lives like that third believer. The choice is ours whether we get to the end of our life and we say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. The choice is ours whether we're a golden vessel and we step in front of our Lord and Savior after our death and He says, Well done, good and faithful servant. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much again for this time together. I pray that what we've talked about today just permeates our lives. I pray that it changes our hearts. I pray that we have the strength and the clarity. and and the desire to be a vessel for you and to be a golden vessel. And we just pray for lives as we go out of here that serve you and love those around us and and just absolutely change lives from your word. We pray for your spirit to work here and pray for all of us as we go about our weeks. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.